We're turning to Acts chapter 12 today, and we'll um, get through the very start of Acts 13. Acts 13 begins kind of a next, uh, the next major section in terms of outline in the book of Acts with the uh, missionary journeys of Paul. And so it's a good place for us to stop for the summer. Today will be our last sermon in Acts. And just so you know where we're headed, um, and it's there in the bulletin now that you have it, I want to make sure you're aware, though, that next week uh, we're going to start a summer series looking at the covenants in Scripture, how they're fulfilled in Christ, um, how God is faithful through all generations. And, and even though Sunday school has ended, we're, we're going to offer something new this summer, and uh, hopefully it's a blessing to you, and that would be a um, a time here in the sanctuary after our fellowship during the normal Sunday school hour uh, for anybody who would like to come um, and ask the pastor or discuss the sermon um, uh, time. And so that will be for the summer to go along with our covenant um, sermon series. So uh, I recognize it's a little bit more theological and want to give ample opportunity to discuss things, um, to answer questions you might have. Uh, I, I Hesitate to say it's an ask me anything, but it could turn into that. So if you have questions about anything else, I'll be there and we'll just um, see how it goes. And we could talk for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, depending on your questions. But really, it's something that will be in large part fueled by by your interest and your participation. And so that will be up here. All ages are welcome. After we have time to get coffee and snacks, we can come and talk about the sermon or, like I said, um, anything else maybe that's on your mind. And so, um, yeah, we'll try that out this summer, and hopefully that can be a blessing for you. Uh, For today, though, finishing up uh, this year's study in in Acts, we'll begin in verse 18 of chapter 12. And uh, to remind you where we are, um, Herod, Herod Agrippa, that's um, the, the grandson of the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus, that's the nephew of the Herod that tried to put to death the adult Jesus. Now this Herod Agrippa um, has put James, of the Peter, James, and John trio, to death by the sword. He put Peter in prison and was ready to do the same to him, but there was a miraculous uh, rescue, and uh, Peter escaped with his life, returned to the church, the prayer meeting that was meeting uh, in the wee hours of the morning to tell them of God's grace. And now we're turning back to Herod. How does he respond to this? Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man, immediately. An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. 
when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and set them off. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word for us today. It is well known that Alexander the Great, that 4th century B.C. ruler, wept when there were no more worlds for him to conquer. It was a display of the hubris that plagued the majority of his reign, that he was power-hungry for more and more and more, but here's the real problem. He was delusional enough to think that he could get it. As his own gravestone originally read, a tomb now suffices him for whom the world was not enough. Let that sink in. A tomb now suffices him for whom the world was not enough. It's a humbling statement. This story uh, of a powerful and prideful man uh, who, who thinks that he can get all that he wants with no limits. This story plays out again and again throughout human history. And every time the mighty fall. It happens in the story of Herod Agrippa in our text. He also believed there were no limits that restricted his ability. And yet this man who claimed to be God is soon dinner for worms. We all have limits. The greatest and the most powerful people in the world have limits. Alexander the Great had limits. Herod has limits. And yet there is one for whom no limits could ever be set. And that is King Jesus. This is a, a story about his unstoppable reign and rule. Don't be, don't be fooled. It seems like Herod's the main character here. No, he's not. Jesus is the main character here. He's the real king. And Herod is nothing more than, than a rival. And I put that in scare quotes because, of course, there is no legitimate rival to the throne. There's nobody who could actually, someday, if they had uh, the right agenda, topple the kingdom of Christ. And yet, people try. And that's why we see Herod is so desperate in our text. That's the first thing I'd like us to consider. We're, we're looking first at this rival king. And notice his desperation. His desperation to, to displace Christ. His desperation to get more and more power and prestige. We saw something of that desperation last week. Desperate to gain the, the, gain the favor of, of the Jewish people. Right? When he kills James and he saw that it pleased them, he thought, well, I guess I'll just keep on doing this. And he plans to do it for Peter with Peter. And remember last time we saw that he takes this, this poor, uneducated fisherman 
And he throws him into the most heavily guarded fortress in Jerusalem. He ties him to guards on either side behind three different gates. It's as though he locks them up and throw, throws away the key. This, this man who posed no physical threat, he was not an enemy of the state. And it seems like overkill, but we noticed last time that for somebody who is anti-Christ, and Herod, in every sense of the word, is anti-Christ, for somebody who is anti-Christ, there is nothing that is more unsettling, there's nothing that's more threatening than the humblest of Christians who dare talk about Jesus. But we saw how God's heavenly devised and heavenly executed rescue plan cut through all of Herod's desperate attempts to snuff out the ministry of the church. And so we can add to his desperation, frustration, his, his anger at the escape of Peter must be channeled somewhere. And so what does he do? Well, he orders the guards who were placed and, and around Peter and Peter's cell to be put to death. Underlings and subordinates are often uh, the recipients of their master's rash mood swings. You know, perhaps you've... you've um, uh, kicked the dog just because you got a, a, a bad letter in the mail. The dog didn't do anything wrong. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, that's kind of what Herod is doing here. Kicking the dog. The guards could sense it's coming. They knew the unstable egomaniac that employed them. That's why verse 18 says, There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And their fears are well-founded. So he's frustrated because his desperate attempts have not worked so far. And then to escape his frustration, he re retreats to his palace in Caesarea, which was uh, an outpost of, of the, the Roman rule of that, of that region. Uh, he doesn't get a break there either because uh, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, uh, those coastal cities, are in desperate need of food, which must come through the exportation of goods of inland cities, namely Galilee, which Herod is in charge of. So in other words, think California needs Colorado's water. California needs Iowa's uh, grain. And this is all part of the, of the king's responsibility. But rather than being concerned for the welfare of his citizens, what are we told? Look at verse 20. It says that he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He's angry. Their neediness is an inconvenience to him. Uh, we could read it a different way, which would be that he's already angry with Tyre and Sidon for a reason that we're not given. And because he's angry, he refuses to give them grain. So either their need for food annoyed him or they annoyed him. So he restricted them from receiving food. But in either case, note here a major difference between the real king and his rival. Friends, the antichrists of this world are consumed with their own wants, their own sense of self-importance. They care little for the needs of others. The pleas of their citizens are just an inconvenience to them. Why are you wasting my time? But in God's kingdom, friends, and this is why it's so beautiful to belong to the church, in God's kingdom... The needs of even the least important citizens receive God's full attention. Not some of it. 
It's not as though he allocates uh, his, his, um, his attention or his provision based upon the prominence of citizens. From the least to the greatest, we all receive the full care of our king. Psalm 10, the Lord is king forever. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Psalm 72, he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. Friends, if you belong to the church by faith in Jesus Christ, if you're part of God's kingdom, you always have a helper. You always have a helper. And the helper isn't uh, some intern, some staff member in the, in the political system. The helper is Jesus Christ himself. He is the advocate. He is, we often uh, attribute this title rightly to the, the Holy Spirit, parakletos, which means advocate, it means comforter, it means helper. But Jesus Christ, that title is also applied to him. He also is the advocate. He also is your helper. So there is nobody who has no helper if you belong to Christ's kingdom. Your needs will be met. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. Are you needy today? Isn't it a good thing to be needy and yet belong to Jesus? A terrible thing to be needy and not to have Jesus. When you rely on the kings of this world, you, you have no such guarantee that you'll have a, a helper or, or that your, your life will be saved. And so that's where Tyre and Sidon are. They, 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 de- they depend on Herod doing the right thing to give them grain and, and so forth. And so they have to come up with their own plan to get the food that they need. And they have an in with one of Herod's right-hand men, this, this gentleman named Blastus. And the, they say, let us have an audience with him. It's a good plan. They know what will work for For a man like Herod, they'll inflate his ego. They'll flatter him. They'll publicly laud him as he gives a speech. That's what happens next. And they do more than just laud him. They attribute it to him of the glory of God. And here again we see uh, the folly of Herod's desperation. In his desperation to establish a kingdom for his own name, a kingdom against that of Christ, first he's tried to kill Christ's minister, James and then Peter, But now that that hasn't worked, he has a second course of action. And that's to take the accolades that belong to Christ as king. In other words, if he can't silence the church in their speaking and talking about Jesus, well, then maybe he can get other people to talk about him just even louder. That's what he tries to do next. And yet this is what leads to his demise. The second thing today, we've seen the rival king's desperation. Now the rival king's demise as he goes to, to give this speech and to receive the accolades of the people of Tyre and Sidon. Interestingly, the Jewish historian Josephus records this event in almost an exact parallel fashion as to that what we find in, in the book of Acts. Yet he even gives more details. It appears that Herod is throwing a celebration in Caesar's honor. At least that's the excuse he used, but we know really it's all about him. Maybe it's Caesar's birthday, so he says, let's have a party and I'll give a speech, but that's that's really the main idea is let him get out in front of the people. And he wears what Luke tells us is a royal robe. Uh, Josephus tells us that this robe has silver 
worked into it so that when he stepped out and the light caught it, it was as though he was a divine being. He's shimmering in the light. He seemed like someone from another world. Josephus says this about the robe that its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed upon it. Immediately, his flatterers called out from various directions using language which boded him no good, for they addressed him as a god. And they invoked him with this cry, Be gracious unto us. Hitherto we revered thee as a man, but henceforth we acknowledge thee to be of more than mortal nature. Josephus said this, this boded him no good. He's right. Uh, now, Herod wouldn't have thought that in the moment. We don't either in the throes of our pride. Um, people were applauding him. They're cheering him on. What could be better than that, right? What's not to like about this? But the scriptures tell us that it is the proud that God humbles. At this moment, he had two choices. As they, as they say, you're, you're not a man, you're You're God. One choice is to go the way of Peter when he's speaking to Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius falls on his face in Acts 10 when Peter comes to his house and he says, I'm a man like you. Or, or, or the, 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 he should have followed the, uh, the actions of the angels in, in Revelation when John bows before them and the angel says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. Worship God alone. But the other choice before Herod is the one that he takes and that is to receive the glory. Verse 23, look there, brings back the the angel from Peter's prison break. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Same word as we found earlier in the chapter, verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter. In the one instance, the strike from the angel means life. In the other instance, it means death. And he's eaten by worms, according to Luke. It's a grisly death. And it's attributed to a king opposed to God's kingdom. That's likely then an allusion to Isaiah 14.11, where Isaiah describes the death that will come to the king of Babylon. This is what we read there. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. You remember Luke's a doctor. So as a physician, perhaps he's describing an intestinal disease But he's also a prophet here. And so he's pronouncing God's judgment upon the one who dares rival the throne of his appointed son. But those who rival the the throne of Christ, they don't need to be somebody in a high place of prestige like Herod. Are we not all susceptible every day to this temptation? You know, God does deserve the glory, but I could keep some for myself. We face that every day. In subtle ways, we face that choice to give God glory or to keep it for ourselves. Now, of course, it's not really a choice. That's the absurdity of the whole thing, to think that we could actually keep glory for ourselves. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, I give my glory to no other. Trying to, to hold on to glory is like trying to hold on to the rays of light. It's impossible. It goes right through. John Piper says, if a man lifts himself up against God, he becomes weaker than a worm. It is insane to commit treason against the creator of the universe. You can't win, Piper says. 
When will we learn the lesson? God will be glorified whether we give him the glory or not. We want him to be glorified in our lives, in our loves, in our lips. You know, what we say, what we're affectionate about, and what we do. That's what we want. We don't want him to be glorified in our judgment or our condemnation, but he will be glorified that way if we do not bow the knee to Christ. I want you to remember, friends, that what happens here to Herod is not some special judgment reserved for the especially wicked of the world. By nature, we are all under the curse of sin, and the curse of sin resigns us back to the dust where the worms live. But to come to God acknowledging that in humility, I'm dust, I'm nothing. You are everything. That's when we see how God will exalt the humble. Isn't there something strangely dignifying about singing, as Isaac Watts has taught us to sing, that Jesus Christ on the cross would devote his sacred head for such a worm as I God not only brings down the work of his enemies, but he causes his work and his kingdom to go forth. So having seen the the demise of the rival king, we want to consider finally today the real king and his domain. Such matter-of-fact declaration of the, the growth of this kingdom and how no amount of opposition can thwart it, we find in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied Herod is decreased to nothing. The word of God increases. Herod is decomposing and the church is multiplying. Uh, There's this steady, unstoppable plodding along of the plan and the people of God, which in one sense we could say is the the whole point of the book of Acts. It's 28 chapters that that is proving Jesus' claim that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. I want us to note here in closing two things. We want to see where this domain grows to and how this domain grows. So, so the where of the kingdom and the how of the kingdom. And the answer to the where is actually everywhere. Where will Christ reign? Everywhere. The kingdom of Christ will keep expanding until it one day covers every corner of the globe and beyond the globe even. Uh, with its, within its boundary markers is more than just the new earth, but the new heavens even. Habakkuk chapter 2, 14 pictures it like this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or Jeremiah, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's where this kingdom is heading. Everybody will know him. Everybody, everywhere. And today we look around and we see pockets of the world where we can only, from our perspective, we only see wickedness. We just see the darkness of evil and sin. Christ, where is your glory in this? I don't see it. It's not here. And yet there's coming a day, friends, and it's coming soon when the whole world over will be claimed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There won't even be a shadow of sin remaining. 
Not a single inch of land that is not claimed for his kingdom. Not a single enemy that, enemy that hasn't been made his footstool. And that's why the church is called to go into all the world because the whole world over belongs to Christ. This is the mission that's being taken up in the start of chapter 13 with the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And it makes sense, right? If Christ's kingdom is a kingdom that expands the whole world over, that means missionaries. And the band of prophets and teachers that we find there in verse 1 in Antioch represents a small microcosm of that global aim. We have Barnabas, who is from Cyprus, Paul from Tarsus, Niger and Lucius from Africa. Menean was a Roman, and not just a Roman, he was a friend of Herod, our, our Herod's uncle. Isn't that interesting? The friend of the enemy has become a friend of the church, a leader in the church even. There is no one that will be able to resist the expansion of the domain of Christ's even if it means enemies becoming ambassadors. So this is, this is the where of Christ's domain. It's, it's everywhere. It will one day expand every corner of, of the world and beyond. We see also in this text the how. How does that happen? How does it grow? And there are three things that are highlighted in this text. Three things for how the kingdom grows. We're always looking for tips and tricks in, in church life. How can we reach people and, and, and what do we need to do to be, to be hip and, and relevant and popular? Here are the three things. Preaching, praying, fasting. Does that sound exciting to you? There are things we often discredit ourselves. Certainly the world does, but even we in the church can do that. When's the last time you actually thought to yourself, you know, preaching does something. Preaching is the means of, of God saving sinners and, and bringing people out of a domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And yet this is God's design. Luke is careful in Acts to always show that when the church grows, it's because the word increases. The word increases. Again, verse 24. So we need to continually come back to passages like this as a church to remind ourselves of what we're supposed to be all about. To answer questions like, what does success look like for Christ? What does it mean for us to glorify God? Well, it does not mean our own glory. It doesn't mean, in most instances, our own popularity. It doesn't mean winning the favor of the cultural elites. It doesn't mean winning over um, popular political figures. It's not by having the biggest church in town. It's not by having the biggest building or the fanciest tech. What does it mean for us to have success as a church? What does it mean for, for God to be glorified in our kingdom work here at Community Presbyterian Church? Don't overthink it. What he wants from us is that we simply talk about him. That we preach his name. If we try to build the church and batter down the gates of hell on the, 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 the basis of means and methods that we come up with, we're sure to fail. Here's what one cultural commentator recently said. Saw this last night. 43% of millennials stated that they either don't know, don't care, or don't believe that God exists. And is this supposed to be a surprise? 
We have turned our churches into glorified nightclubs starring preachers who deliver self-help sermons and worship leaders who want to be the next American Idol. There's a, a page, or an Instagram page you can follow. Don't follow it, but you could follow it. Uh, preachers and Sneakers. Have you heard about this? this? This guy who has made it his mission to go to these mega churches, and he, he takes screenshots from their, from their uh, sermons, and he finds the sneakers that those preachers are wearing and tells us how much they actually cost, usually over $1,000, just for the sneakers. In seeking to be relevant, we have lost all relevance whatsoever. That's the, that's the problem of the, the church today. We've lost the mission. Which, of course, isn't to say that we can't lose the mission here in a church that's all about preaching and say we've got it made because we preach. See, what, what, what Jesus is concerned with, what God is concerned with, is pride in thinking that it's all about us. And you can be prideful in a church that's all about the means of grace. Oh, we preach here. We preach the gospel here. We preach Lectio Continua. We, we preach expository sermons. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who came down off the pulpit one Sunday and somebody rushed up to him and, and said, I want to be the first to congratulate you on that excellent sermon. And Lloyd-Jones replied, well, you're too late. The devil already beat you to it. Lloyd-Jones got it, right? The issue is Pride. Issues pride. That's why it's not just about preaching. It's not just about the externals. We, we do it right here. It's about our character. The character of our leaders. The, characters, the character and the, 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 the lifestyle of our people. Are we a humble people? Not just do we do the right things according to, let's say, reformed theology. But do we recognize we are nothing more than sinners saved by grace... And God alone is the one who grants the increase. There needs to be a a culture of humility, of gentleness, of expectancy. That's what we find from the church here in Acts 13. They intentionally are sending off missionaries to unreached people groups. Notice the context of this commissioning service. It says in verse Two, while they worshipped the Lord, while they were worshipping the Lord. It's in the context of the worship service that the Holy Spirit has a word that says, you've got to go and do missions. We learn here missions is a part of worship. It's not an add-on that we, that we just kind of tack on to everything else we do in church life. It's integral to what the church does. When we come together on Sunday, it's not to be part of a holy huddle. It's not to pretend that, that everything is... is it's okay with us. We haven't made because we're Christians and try to forget the needs and the cares of the world. Rather, worship fuels our mission. It's in worship that we're commissioned by God every single week to go out back into the world and tell people about him and bring them with you next Sunday. What the Spirit is calling these people to is rightly called uh, work Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. It's not easy. It's not simple. And that's why the church collectively responds in prayer and fasting. They recognize this is a serious deal. We have to take it seriously. They want to confirm the Lord's will in this matter. So they fast. Fasting, a forgotten practice by many today. But 
As Derek Thomas says, their fasting changed the course of history because from this point onward, Christianity invaded the heart of the Roman Empire. Uh, Friends, I want to end just by encouraging you with this word. There is no telling the things that can be done when we bow the knee to Christ, when we earnestly seek his will, when we make our allegiance to to King Jesus. When we do that, then, then simple, foolish means of preaching, praying, fasting, actually become powerful means of the church expanding the domain of Christ until he comes. Have you bowed the knee today? Are you on team Jesus? It's the winning team. His is the victorious kingdom. Uh, Don't buy the delusion of somebody like Herod that thought there's some way, you know, you can rival this king. God laughs at those attempts, Psalm 2 tells us. And the epitome of foolishness is trying to secure your own happiness with with your glory, with, with Your success, with your pride. Jesus told a parable of somebody who structured their life around that way. They had it all. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of goods. They had a lot of comfort. And do you remember how this story ends? With God's condemning words, You fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Translation, you have wasted your life. You have made the wrong decision. Because you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus. Because you do not belong To his kingdom, which has no end. Isn't that what was conveyed in that epitaph of Alexander the Great? Who for all his aims and ambitions still couldn't avoid the decay of death. uh, Returning to worm territory. Returning to the dust. Do you remember what that gravestone read? A tomb now suffices. Him for whom the world was not enough. Why not bow to King Jesus? The world was not enough for him either. But he at least has this over Alexander. His tomb is empty. And yours could be too. Yours could be too. If by faith and repentance you bow to the king whose kingdom extends from this life and indeed even from this world into the next. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the witness of the early church which reminds us about what we are to be all about here as a church. Uh, to not lose sight, not to become discouraged at, at those who would try to pose a threat to King Jesus in his reign. We know you laugh at at those who try to set themselves against you and your anointed and appointed son. And so give us faith to to commit ourselves to your means of kingdom growth and, and domain expansion, simple preaching, earnest praying, committing to to fasting before you, denying ourselves and not being puffed up with pride. Oh Lord, our pride is a perennial issue that threatens our work for you, our ministry before you. So keep us humble. Keep us relying alone on on King Jesus. What he has done and what he will do when he comes again. We pray it in his name. Amen.